Well, we have something like 40% identical DNA with a banana. So mm. our biological connectivity in the in in this world is extraordinary. And here's something. Just, just stay with me on this. You ready? <laughs> you realize the common ancestor. Go ahead. I know, no more bananas at home. Yeah, Cross that one off the list. <laughs> We're vegetarians. No, it's a vegetarian. I'm Ilaria Baldwin. And I'm Alec Baldwin. And this is our podcast, What's One More? You know and love our guest today. He's a star in the world of stars. He is an astrophysicist, planetary scientist, best-selling author, television, and podcast host. He's the director of the Hayden Planetarium at the Coase Center for Earth and Space at the Museum of Natural History in New York City. His new book is Welcome to the Universe in 3D, a visual tour, which comes out March 22nd. He hosts the Star Talk podcast, Welcome Neil deGrasse Tyson to the show. My first question is, are you a sci-fi film fan? Now, what do you think? Well, I'm just, I want to know, you, but you might give me an example of some of the great sci-fi films. Just give me a couple of examples. Okay, so just to make it clear, uh, I would rather wait until the movie comes out of a sci-fi novel than read the sci-fi novel. That's how much a fan I am of the movie genre. Uh-huh. So just put that out there. So I'm not one of those who goes to the movies and say, that's not what the book said. Right. No, that, no, those people should just never, they should stay out of the movie theaters. Right. Okay. I think we can all agree on that. So what are some of the classics you love? Oh, so, uh, well, you go, go back to 2001 and Space course, Odyssey. Yeah. I think if you look at what that was at the time, 1968, mm-hmm. You know, we no, we hadn't yet been on the moon, and it's talking about space travel like it's like the solar system is our backyard. Mm-hmm. There's a Pan Am space shuttle, okay? <laughs> the old farts in your audience will remember Pan Am. <laughs> no one else, it was. I do. <laughs> uh, it was Pan Am, and there was a Howard Johnson's on on the rotating space station. There was AT and T telephone, and we thought to ourselves, "Wow, if space is going to be part of our future, the only way you turn a space." program into a space industry is if commercial enterprise participates. So this was a vision of the future that was very forward thinking. And and plus with the music and the and the, the filming and just all of it. So that one I think is is, is canon for anyone mm-hmm. who wants to think about this. This brings me to the recent news about these billionaires that are going that are going to space. And then, and then I have on one hand you say there's so much that that money could do here on this planet that is suffering so much. But at the same time, is there at some point a need for people who have the means to start making the the trek off this planet so that we can be the Jetsons? And, and, and I don't add I want, the, I'm adding the Jetsons. And, whether, and whether it's public dollars or private dollars, should we still go into space? Yeah, so I have a couple of responses. First, um, looking at the Branson Bezos journey holding the 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 spacex one aside for the moment those two they they say oh, we go high above earth and people say i want to go high enough so that the national boundaries disappear and i see a pale blue dot so if you imagine earth the size of a schoolroom globe those two billionaires went about the height of the thickness of two dimes above a schoolroom globe mm. so yeah i guess countries disappear there but so too do they from an airplane, right? right. So this is not some right. unique 
It was like a very high airplane. <laughs> a very high airplane. That's correct. You're not seeing the curvature of the Earth. You're not seeing uh, any of that. Really? So, so it's a joy, right? You get. Oh, here's what else you get. You go high enough so that the air above you, the atmosphere above you, is so thin it no longer scatters blue light because we have a blue sky because that's light extracted from the sunlight, and it go, that's blue light taken out of sunlight that makes the sky look blue and the sun look yellow. Right. We have a white star, even though people keep calling it yellow. All right. So it does that, but you can go high enough. So there's not enough air molecules to do that. And in broad daylight, the stars come out right. mm. because there's no longer. So that's a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. And you can get that in these journeys. But you can also get it just by waiting for sunset. Okay. So uh, so these, uh, if, if you're going to put me in space, give me a destination. Not, I don't want to just boldly go where hundreds have gone before. Right. That being said, you got to start somewhere. Right. And there's, they will sell every possible seat that they have make available going into these sort of suborbital temporary weightless um, journeys. And that is a tourist marketplace being open right before our eyes. So that's my first point. Right. Sec By the way, Elon Musk folks actually went into orbit. Okay. That's much higher than the two dimes, but not as much as you might think. They're about a centimeter okay. above the surface of a schoolroom globe. You get a little bit of curvature there and three days of weightlessness. That was an authentic sort of space experience, those three astronauts who then plunked down in the Atlantic and got fished out from their capsule. Should we do this? Here's, I, I will give one answer. You ready? Let's go back 30,000 years and the three of us are in a cave. All right? And... And uh, Mr. Baldwin, you are a cave elder. Cave elders would be 32 years old. <laughs> I'm the father of a cave elder. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, the old folks in the cave are in their 30s because no, nobody lives on. I'm the cave the geezer. Anyway, go the ahead. cave geezer. Yeah, there you go. And so you and the youngins come up to you and say, uh, "Gia, wise, wise uh, grandpa, um, uh, we want to explore beyond the cave door to see what's out there." And you then say, no, we have cave problems. We need to solve the cave problems in the cave first before anyone goes outside the cave door. Anyone who says, why are we going into space when we have problems on Earth? Sound like that to me. Because here we are on this dot called Earth amid this vast universe of limitless resources. And you're going to say solve the problems here at first as though the whole rest of the universe wouldn't possibly have solutions to your problems and insights. And, and, and I'll tell you something else. Just think about how people thought differently about Earth once we saw it from space. It was like, oh, my gosh, there really are no color-coded countries. Earth is just clouds and land and oceans. And we're adrift alone, with no hope of anyone coming to save us from ourselves. We are all in this together. That is a perspective that I don't even know if you can put a price tag on it. And you get that only from space. That would solve a lot of our problems. Consider how many wars are fought. I, we might still have religious wars and political wars, but how many other wars are fought on limited access to resources? Right. And if the universe is unlimited resources, that will systematically remove an entire category of armed conflict from the history books. So, uh, so it could be that space is the solution 
a big solution to some of the greatest sources of conflicts humans have ever known. Tell us about your new book. Oh, oh, thanks for asking. Yeah, it's a, t it's, I taught a class. I co-taught a class at Princeton University many, many moons ago with two colleagues. And it was a new, it was new on the course calendar. And it was, uh, the three of us taught, I taught, um, the, 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 the earth, the solar system and stars. And a colleague of mine taught galaxies and a third one taught cosmology, big bang, the universe, time travel. And it started out, there were like 30 people in the class. And then after a couple of years, it was like 300. So it was really popular. And we said, let's write a book on our notes. So we wrote a textbook, which is a very readable thing for a textbook. Most textbooks are like sustained wiki pages and they're, they're not page turners. But this, we wrote it as a, something to get into it. And the title of the course is Welcome to the Universe. And then we said, well, wait a minute. This is a big, fat textbook. Not People don't have patience for that. So we cherry-picked that Princeton textbook for all the coolest, funnest stuff and made a pocket-sized version. So it's literally called the, a, a Brief Welcome to the Universe, the pocket-sized tour. And it's, it's all of the juicy stuff in the universe that we taught to Princeton undergraduates and is sitting there in something that can fit practically in the palm of your hand. We're very proud of this. Oh, I love it. I can't, I can't wait to read it. Now, I quote you all the time about how we're all stardust. And I love that what you were saying just before we started talking about your book, um, about, you know, just how vast and how and the perspective of being able to look at our planet and all the things that we can learn with that perspective and that the silly things that we fight about that become not silly because they're so serious and we cause serious damage. Um, if the perspective of the whole stardust thing, if you can say it, because I, I, I repeat it to Alec all the time, but I don't have your voice. Uh, there are a lot of different ways to think about it. But one of them is you stand there at, at night and you look up and you say, well, I'm here and the universe is there and, and the universe is vast and you can end up feeling small depending on how big your ego is to start with, that can make you feel small. But what, with a cosmic perspective, what you learn is that the very atoms that comprise the molecules of your body are forged in stars that then exploded, scattered that enrichment across the galaxy into next generation gas clouds out of which new star systems were formed ours included. So that when I look up at the night sky, it's not, it's not that we are in a universe alive. No, yes, that's true. But what's more true and even deeper is that the universe is alive within us because we share the same atoms as those stars in the mm. sky. And for me, that is yeah, if you had a big ego, you could say, well, now I'm little, but no, I now feel big because I have a connectivity to the cosmos that I never knew was there. Mm -hmm. And when you, when you, when you take this uh, to, to the next level and you realize that not only do we have biological kinship with all other life forms on earth, we have chemical kinship to earth itself and atomic kinship across the universe. There's no greater place that we belong than to the universe itself. You're a big bang proponent, correct? 
Well, it's not a matter of it's just, what is the evidence support? Yes, right. it supports right. the Big Bang. Right. It's not like I I'm voting for it or that. No, no. I, but, I believe and for, it. And for, and for people who've heard that phrase, who've heard that as the name of a comedy on TV, <laughs> literally, w explain what what was the Big Bang? What blew up? A star? A star blew yeah, up? No, yeah. So so let me start by saying that the universe is under no obligation to make sense to you. Right. Okay, so I just want to start there. Okay. <laughs> okay. No, so I, I, I love can tell you, that. I can't handle that. I can't handle that. No, you can't handle it. <laughs> so, so um, what we were forced into the Big Bang by the data. We're looking at the universe and we look all around us and everything's expanding from everything else. And you say, well, wait a minute, if everything's expanding, that means yesterday everything was a little closer together. Right. And the day before was even closer. Well, let's sort of run the numbers backwards. Oh my gosh, everything in the universe was in the same place at the same time, 13.8 billion years ago. If all of this matter and energy was in the same place, how hot would it be? How much pressure would it be? So you run through the numbers, you go into your particle accelerators and say, show me what happens to particles under these temperatures and under these pressures. And you do that, the particles collide, they make new particles, energy goes into matter, back into energy, and we have an entire description of what happened in the first three minutes of this grand and glorious universe. And so at the beginning, we called that the Big Bang. Now you wanna ask, where did that come from? I don't know. Right. Right. That's a frontier. It I can't handle be. that. <laughs> it, can, it could be that we are one of a multiple expressions of universes and that there's actually a sort of a, a multiverse that is the collection of them all. But then I would be concerned because then you could say, well, what started the multiverse? Could there be a hyperverse that is comprised of multiverses, itself comprised of universes, itself comprised of galaxies? and self-comprised of stars and planets, and on at least one planet, people. That's the Big Bang in like eight sentences. I wow. know, I love that. Or maybe we're wow. like these little marbles inside this alien's pocket that yeah, like yeah. in Men in Black. I don't want to think that, but- <laughs> yeah. And he just are, takes are, his ethics out and plays with it every once in a while. Are we, all, are we just some snow globe on the mantle of an alien? Or possibly worse yet, are we all a simulation? Oh. Okay. I mean, you played Mario Kart or whatever. You play a video game and there are characters in there. And there's sort of, there's music to how they move and things. And it's kind of fun. But imagine you could program into that software a, enough neurosynaptic activity in the minds of the characters that they think they are real and they think they have free will. So how do we know we are not characters in a video game programmed by an alien in his parents' basement. Shakespeare got it right. He said, "All the world's a stage," or something like that. And or oh, yeah, or so. the Truman Show. Oh, Truman Show. Yeah, yeah. That's except all the people around him were real. The scripting was, but they were all scripted. But they were still flesh and blood, like he was. But his understanding of his of world was, was. But that's a version. It's a version of of living in a simulation. So the way the argument goes. There's the one original universe, and in there you have life forms that program a simulated world. And they, those people think they're real, and they invent computing, and then they write programs mm -hmm. that simulate worlds. And this just continues all the way It could continue on. It can get really trippy. If you, if you blind yourself and, 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 and throw a dart 
which one of these universes are going to, is it likely to hit? Is it the first one? No, it's going to hit one of these others. And that's the strong argument for why we are probably in a simulation. But mm. I, but I thought about it with some friends and I found a way out of this. Okay. You ready? You're interested. Okay. It is all of these simulated universes have the power to completely simulate another universe, except the last one, which hasn't evolved to that point yet. So either, and so we don't have this power yet. So we can't be any of these in the middle. So we're either the last one that hasn't gotten there yet, or the first one that hasn't begun it yet. So I feel much better. So, so it's a 50-50 <laughs> chance. It, 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 it is a 50-50 chance. Um, I, I love, when you said that to me, you know, two, three years ago, when you you said, you know, people will say, you know, I'm I'm from here and then you go to there and then you go to there and it ultimately it just goes out and we're all stardust. And when we can start to look at each other and feel that kinship with each other and we can stop being so divided on this political side or this religious side or this science side or that whatever side, and as long as you're not doing something that's actually actively harming another person, and we can start to feel, you know, this team team connection and biological connection that we obviously all have with each other. I just hope that that's going to be a little bit of a peaceful. Well, we have nugget. something like 40% identical DNA with a banana. So mm. our biological connectivity in the, in, in this world is extraordinary. And here's something just stay with me on this. You ready? <laughs> you realize the I was common about to ancestor. Eat a banana. I know. Can't, no more bananas at home. Yeah, Cross that one off the list. <laughs> We're vegetarians. No, it's a vegetarian. Tell us. Tell us. Tell us. I got one for you. Ready? So, so humans and mushrooms. So animal life and mushroom life. These are two kingdoms in the tree of life. Animals and fungi. Okay. Animals and fungi split from each other in the tree of life later than its common ancestor split with green plants, mm. which means we and mushrooms are more alike than either we or mushrooms are compared to green plants on this earth. It makes a lot of sense. Now, I'd, like to, I'd, like, I'd like to bring us down to earth and into the classroom, if you don't mind. I'm talking to Senior Mushroom and Senior Rita Banana that, here. That, that's uh, why mushrooms two, taste Two heavy-hitting scientists. Let oh, me that's do, let so me, interesting. Let me just, exactly like in vegetarian restaurants. So you have to like a portobello mushroom don't to encourage simulate her, meat. Please, doctor. It's meaty. It's, it's it meaty. It is meaty. Yes, it's well, it's that. vegan. I like it's, so it's impossible, Burger. But anyway. But, but let, what you only gave short trip to what I did say the last time we met. Yeah. Which was, I gave an example of someone who said, I said, um, uh, it somehow they came up where they're from. And they mm -hmm. said, one person, oh, I'm Italian. I said, well, where are you born? Brooklyn. I said, well, where are your parents born? Brooklyn. Well, where are their parents born? Italy. So he's going back to where he wants to then report mm -hmm. on his in, on his family pedigree. There's another woman, I, 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 she, said, I, she said she's Swedish. And I said, oh, where were you born? In Minnesota. Where are your parents born? Minnesota. Where were their parents born? New York. Where were their parents born? Sweden. So I'm Swedish, right? So if you kept going back, because where you draw the line is kind of arbitrary, mm -hmm. right? You're, you're seeking the point that you want to then deliver to the person you're in right. conversation with. So just take it a little further back. Keep going. Oh, by the way, you know where it lands? In Africa. Everybody has lineage 
to Africa. But no one takes it that far back. They want to stop somewhere in Europe first and then and then say, yeah, we're European. But stuff happened before anyone ever got to Europe. The two of you keep going back, 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 wait, 18 billion years. I'd like to go forward. Let's do it. Love it. Curiosity can be such a strong tool for children, but oftentimes as parents, we may unknowingly stifle that curiosity for oh, our own time. convenience. All what advice time. do you have for parents when kids are curious and they even, even if they want to make a mess? I strongly endorse, not that I endorse anything, but if were I to endorse anything, I strongly endorse raising uh, free-range children. Now, here's the thing. You have to put in your head, what is the actual cost of things relative to the lesson that could be learned if that thing gets destroyed? So you pull out a, a fresh dozen eggs and they're sitting on the counter and your toddler can just barely reach up and grab an egg. And what's the first thing you say? No, don't do that. I, and we know why you're saying that. You know, because if they keep playing with the egg, it's going to break and make a mess. Okay. So what is the cost of that egg? It, is it 30 cents? Something plus or minus somewhere around there? And if so, what is the value of the education of the toddler learning? This hard thing is actually fragile. There aren't many hard, fragile things in the world. Okay, we have a word for that. It's called brittle. Okay, so so it's a hard, yet it's fragile. And then there's like, what's that inside? There's this like yellow stuff and this and the goopy other stuff. What is that? It's egg yolk. Wait a minute. If that got fertilized, it could be a chicken. There's a whole lesson plan mm -hmm. that could unfold after the toddler breaks the egg. But no, you have denied an entire scientific experiment. What else happens? Your toddler pulls the pots and pans out from under the kit, from under the sink, and they're banging with the wooden, and they do, and you're saying, cut out the racket. The pots and pans are getting dirty and it's making noise. Did you have kids to retain order in your house? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no, no. And I had six no. kids. Alec thought, Alec thought about that first. Cliff. It didn't really occur to him. Are we going to whip a series to you? This is called What Are the Odds with Neil deGrasse Tyson. I'm going to whip off some questions, so is she, and give us a quick answer before we get to our final question. I'll do it. What are the odds AI will become smarter than humanity and destroy mankind? It already is. I don't think it'll ever destroy us because we there's, there's no way we would give it that much access right. to have power over us to them. Just, I don't see that happening. But it's already smarter than us. Okay. It beat us in Jeopardy. It'll beat us in any game show we've ever invented, any board game. That's so true. it's already smart. We're past that. Right. And it hasn't happened yet, so I'm not worried about it. What are the odds a manned mission to Mars will happen and when? I think it's not going to happen because someone wants to. There's got to be motivation. And what kind of motivation does it? War does it. Or you find diamond mines there. But just to do it, to do it, that's the big delusion that I don't think it will happen unless we find a geopolitical reason that forces us to. Mm -hmm. So I say not in our lifetimes. Uh, what are the odds we'll all have our own personal robots? Okay, so old timers think of robots as these humanoid things walking right. around. You realize your coffee machine is a robot because you can program it. Your 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 the your car has robotic the Hubble telescope is a robot. Mm -hmm. We are surrounded by robots. Right. Robots don't have to look like people to be robots. But it's not Rosie from the Jetsons. Yeah, it's not Rosie from the Jetsons. Rosie was the maid, right? So, mm -hmm. And plus, people imagine robots driving their car for them. 
The self-driving car is the robot. Right. right. It, it, it doesn't have to. There's nothing sacred about what human beings we don't look have to, like. We don't have to anthropomorphize the robot. It can be correct. Right. In fact, that there's no reason to do that ever at all. What are the odds that we will be flying cars instead of driving cars, and when? We we already have flying cars. They're called helicopters. No one wants to think of it that way, but that's what those are. And the next best thing to flying cars, because you want to get around the traffic that's ahead of you, the next best thing to flying cars are tunnels and overpasses. Mm. <laughs> what, do you think, what do you think of those jet propulsion packs? You think those are going to be real? Can people fly with those? <laughs> um, a jet jet packs, they'll be noisy. Really? And where do you refill? And like, really? I'm just imagining like really bad accidents of people smashing into things because yeah, well, yeah, that's I, I kind of just bad. rather sit in a comfortable chair in a car, yeah, and play music. And he's right with and- the tunnels and the overpasses. Like, you're going to have to have some rules. I mean, again, I'm going to go back to the Jetsons. Like, even George gets in traffic, and it's flying traffic, and then he tries you're to go like above and below. But like, you have to have the- order. I didn't think but, about but the what, noise. What is an underpass except? You're getting past traffic that's Correct. otherwise going the other yeah, way. No, it's and that's sense. going into the other dimension, which is what a flying car would It's just do. the other dimension, which is a bridge. And a car whose engine fails just coasts uh, to the side of the road. Right. A flying, a helicopter whose engine fails becomes a brick. Yeah. Often scientific news seems negative. Global warming, overpopulation, the environment. What are some good science stories and news that you can tell us about? Give us one or two. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So good science news. Well, often the good ones are all of the medical advances that are better to diagnose your condition, to early detection of disease, the eradication of disease, the future now that we have the genome fully understood and mapped for human for the human species. That's a whole future. You need some tandem sort of moral code to go with that because you don't want parents overly meddling with what might be the future of their children. So I want a, I want a concert pianist uh, to, right. to, or a football player and you start meddling. You, you, know, you want to do things like let's eradicate all terminal diseases that our species have ever had. So the medical profession, it's, we'll see great advances. I also see neuroscience. Psychologists hate it when I say this, but I still think it that I see neuroscience as one day rendering psychologist obsolete because we'll fully understand all the neurosynaptic challenges that a human being goes through and that we might be able to fix it, adjust it, um, uh, repair damage that we've had emotionally. Through trauma. Th- th- through trauma, correct. And so I see neuroscience as a wonderful, beautiful frontier, again, provided that it's done ethically. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. It was great to see both of you again. Stay safe out there. All right, guys. Thanks for having me. You know what I love about Neil deGrasse Tyson is his excitement, his passion. Because other people who are famous, and we won't name them, they're a little dry, a little more dry toast, as you would, as you taught me, dry toast. Well, but that's part of being a really exceptional person. You can be really, really smart, but if you don't have the charisma and the ability to give information in a way that we can understand then you're some you're a locked box. You're somebody with a lot of information. He is somebody with a lot of information. He's charismatic, and he is capable of delivering it in a very charismatic, wonderful, palatable way. Okay. Okay, thanks. Thanks for joining us, guys. Bye. <laughs> thanks for hanging out with us. Make sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And share the show with your friends and help us grow. We'll talk to you guys next week.